Hello everyone, my name's David. I'm the host of the Hypothetic RL podcast. This is Full Support of the Board, which is a short-run series podcast that I have created, basically trying to get uh, intelligent voices and podcasters from a, a variety of different uh, podcasts to come on this show and give their opinions in a panel-style format. Uh, so for this first episode, which is about Super League, uh, I have Phil Kaplan, who is an author and the owner of 4020 Magazine and co-host of the 4020 Podcast. I have Mark, who is the... Oh, sorry, I have two Marks, I apologize. I have Mark Stockman, who is the host of Outlawed Rubbery Podcast. Uh, he's a former player for Gateshead and Sheffield and the Scotland Under-18s. Um, and I have Mark Illingworth, who is the host of the Super League Pod. Uh, hello, everyone. How are you going? Hello. Good to speak to you. I'm just struggling for myself with the word intelligent, but uh, we'll, we'll let that pass for the time being. I think you're very intelligent, Phil. I listen to your podcast, and I agree with everything you say. Um, so maybe if you're not intelligent, then neither am I. So uh, I, I prefer to think you're intelligent. makes me feel better about myself. That's kind I'm here for balance. <laughs> <laughs> you're all here for your own personal things. So I think basically the topic for, for this discussion is the Super League. How does the Super League ma maximise its potential uh, is the way I framed this to you. Uh, I've then broken it up into a series of subhe subheadings. So what I will do is I'll we'll go through each of them one by one. I'll give you all the opportunity to talk about it, and then we can we can magically wave our wands and work out how Super League becomes the most powerful sport in all of England. Um, I I don't obviously tongue in cheek. We don't think that's going to happen, but we can see how it could be obviously a lot more successful than it is, and how it reaches its potential. So. The first one, and this is the first thing that anyone who talks about rugby league, especially in England, talks about, is the structure of the Super League. Um, the question that I've got for each of you, and I'll go to each of you one by one, is how important is the structure to Super League and, and its, its appeal, and what structure do you think is the best way for Super League to go forward? Um, I might go to Phil first. Phil, what do you think about those questions? I guess it depends initially on how do you define structure. Um, are you talking about the number of teams you would have in a league or are you talking about the governance and legislation behind that? Because I think really we've got to the point where we have to reissue, uh, the, uh, re, um, uh, I, I don't know, what, what is the right word, reinvent perhaps the, um, the idea of, of perhaps licensing stroke franchising as opposed to a traditional league structure which w we dabbled with um, for a very short space of time in typical rugby league fashion over here dispensed with before we've probably done the, the due diligence to decide if it worked or we're, we're at an interesting phase and, and again just to take it back one level um, I, I think the cyclical it's the same over here as I suspect over there and it's it's where we are in that cycle at the moment and I have the feeling that we're one of those down uh, turns I, th I think we are at a crossroads and people who deny that and call you negative for saying that are, are not 
living in necessarily realistically where we are. And, and I would say that we have had periods in the past where um, night, the early 1970s, for example, where we, we've gone through this self-examination process and we're there again at the moment. One of the, uh, the most disturbing things that I read this week was that, that Gary Hetherington, who's on the Strategic Review Committee, that is looking at where we go as regards uh, structure and external finance and everything else concerned with the game, said that for the last 25 years, we haven't had a plan. Uh, the last 25 years, Rugby League here has been the richest it's ever been. There's been more money coming into it, more uh, chance to look at structure, to, to, to look at everything uh, that you want the sport to be. Um, and clearly he is now admitting as one of the people that's been in a position to, to bring that forward. And, and you'd have to say at one of the more progressive clubs um, that is now admitting that we haven't done it. So I don't think it's quite as easy to say what structure would, would you have. We, we've all got an idea of uh, perhaps what we would like Rugby League to look like. It's about have we got the will to do something radical at this moment in time to make the sport look different coming out of these pandemic times. And uh, I'd say we've now got, I've been saying it for a while, we've got a, um, a distinctive split between those clubs that are able to be full-time, those who are able to be part-time. I think that determines your competition structure. We're talking again about um, leaving it for the next two years so there will be no change. It will be a one-up, one-down promotion relegation. And if we were to throw in a team like Toulouse that have just been promoted, the absolute worst thing that could happen for them and the competition was if they were to be immediately relegated and that's the cycle that I think we've got to break so we've all got an idea of structure I just think um, we, we need to get up to 16 full-time teams in, in probably two conferences we need to have vi viable and valid competitions for those who aren't full-time and a door that is open for those that get investment and improve themselves to become full-time from part-time and, and a measure of those who are full-time to say if they don't fulfil the standards to drop back to being part-time but that needs really strong governance they've got to take out the hands of the club so there is a very long answer to a very short question <laughs> no that's fine that's a it's a really good answer um and exactly the kind of answer that i thought i would hear from you uh, so when I I should sort of probably should have clarified that a bit more. When I meant structure, I did mean season a season structure rather than the governance. We do have I do have another section about governance later on, uh, but that's that's fine. That's no problem. And you did answer the question. Um, so I think probably the next I might go to I suppose the person who who would be the expert on on the season, seeing as he runs a podcast called the Super League Pod. Um, Mark, what same sort of question in terms of a in terms of a season structure, in terms of how the competition is run, how important do you think it actually is to the success of rugby league, how the season is run, and what is your ideal, what do you think is the best way it should be run? It's almost sort of made itself important by the amount of times we change it and the amount we talk about it. You know, I would say in the pre-social media period, we've probably didn't quite obsess about it as much um maybe i don't know but we've had um let me just count them up because <laughs> so i've got a list in front of me one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen changes of structure in my lifetime so that's since 1985 in the top division of, mm. of rugby league in this country so um we love a good change don't we uh i so i think it has become important because of that but in reality, it shouldn't be the most important thing. I think Phil's touched on some of the things that should be more important. Um, but seeing as we're in a position where we've made it important and 
we absolutely have done. Um, the thing that seems completely missing for me from what seems to be a move in, in a year's time planned to go to a 14th different system um, the, to the two tens, two divisions of 10 system that's been talked about is there's a complete lack of engagement with the stakeholders about this it feels like uh, everyone will have noticed um, think fan engagement have kind of popped up on the scene haven't they in the last few months with Kevin doing his survey and starting to appear on podcast interviews that sort of thing and um, that absolutely is demonstrated in this league structure conversation because we haven't had any it feels like any outreach to the wider fan base the people who actually pay for you know I know Sky pay a lot of money for rugby league but so do the the rugby league fans it wouldn't survive that either um and i don't i don't know if we've been approached at all to discuss whether this is the right way forward and and all i hear from the fans is we don't want to watch the same team three times every every you know every year which is what 10 a division of 10 would result in so um i'm not sure if that's the way forward per Personally, there's one option we haven't tried, <laughs> and if I was to sort of say which option I'd prefer, it's kind of a franchising model, but a conferences model, and that that's how you balance the season out. And I actually think conferences would work in the NRL just as well as over here. So um, it could be a model that you apply to to the whole of the sport around the world. In competitions, can have smaller conferences, or you know, be built to a similar structure as well. I, I do think. Um, a conference-based system would be the way to go. I have written about it extensively in the past, so if people want to go on the Super League Pod blog, they'll find our, they'll find a post where I've written about conferencing. But basically, if we could get to a position where there's 16 full-time teams, uh, you'd split it into two conferences, conferences of eight. You'd play the majority of your fixtures within a com- within your conference, but you'd play some inter-conference fixtures to make up a, say, 23-24 sort of game. Um, fixture list and that's where you'd be at okay no that's that's a good answer uh there's a couple of things that lead into the topics we're going to talk about in in a sec as well but just to just to give the other market a chance so um mark outlawed mark i'll call you uh (laughs) so, so same question basically how important do you think the structure actually is um and if if you were in charge what sort of structure do you think that you would go with Structure is probably one of the most important things that we have, which is disappointing because it's one of the, um, you know, as Mark alluded to, one of the things that we kind of mess about with the most. And, you know, it's it's quite frustrating at times, you know, for rugby league fans to kind of go, well, what are we doing this year? Is it going to be a, a Super 8 model? Is it going to be a franchising model? Is it going to be a normal one at one down model? So if it's confusing for rugby league fans, then it's going to be confusing for fans outside of the sport that we're trying to engage in that as well. So I'm not necessarily a fan of the idea of this new kind of two Super League um, sets of 10, um, because for me, it it kind of just turns around and, and, you know, gives a big kick in the face to all the part-time teams that potentially are doing some good stuff, especially some of the the League One teams um, that are essentially... A lot of expansion teams so we're kind of walking away from that and it just starts to become a little bit insular for me now mark did touch 
very well on the idea that, I mean, I'm a, a season pass holder at one of the Super League teams. And this year especially, we've seen a drop in crowds, which is disappointing considering obviously we didn't get any, you know, rugby league last year to, to go and watch other than the odd um, sort of game early on in the year. So you would have thought that fans would have been kind of eager to get back. And, we you know, we saw it in other sports. But for whatever reason, we, we didn't in rugby league. And I don't know whether that's kind of the fans pushing back because of pricing. I don't know whether it's the fans pushing back because, you know, because of the whole loop fixture thing. Um, again, I'm not a big fan of the loop fixtures. Um, so to give you a, an idea, I know I said uh, I was a, a season pass holder. So I'm a season pass holder at Hull FC. And to play your local rivals, the Hulkingston Rovers, three, potentially four times if you get them in the cup or, you know, you, you've got them at Magic Weekend, something like that. It kind of takes the the edge off it. Whereas actually, if you have that one game at your home and you can make it into a cauldron for that game, you know, for me, you're going to get 20, 25,000 there rather than the, the kind of thirteen to 15,000 that we had. I don't think there's an easy fix. Um but I think you're right in what you're saying, David. There's a few other um, subjects that we're going to go through here that kind of lean into the how the whole structure is is kind of put together, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fine. Well, and and as you were answering your question, also a little bit on Mark's one, it sort of leads us to our next one. So, so the next question is about fan engagement and crowds. So basically, the question is, what do you think that the Super League itself and the clubs can do to have more fan engagement and you know whether that would be able to bring crowds a bit higher. I might go to Super League Pod Mark um, because that way you're not talking twice in a row, Mark. I'll, I'll let um, I'll let the Mark from Super League Pod answer. But yeah, basically uh, the question is, you know, how do how do clubs and Super League self get more fan engagement? Well, this is a, a topic I am interested in. Just to pick up on what Mark was talking about about loop fixtures, because mm. um, I do think that's an example of something that hasn't been engaged with the fans about um very strangely when super league was going through its biggest growth in attendances was a period where we actually had loop fixtures between being i think 2001 after the whole gateshead and sheffield debacles um through to when we had licensing in 2009 so throughout that period crowds were actually going up um, playoff crowds were as highest they've ever been that sort of situ- was the situation and now we all hate loop fixtures probably because we talk about them between each other on social media or they've got a name or something like that I don't know but we used to not hate them so it, it, it's it's understanding for fan engagement it's understanding wh- why these changes have happened um, why you know it's so it's actually reaching out to the fans I think a lot of the time what you get in rugby league is people being defensive um probably because we've had the same leaders entrenched in in the sport for such a long time that there's doubtless decisions that they've made that can be pulled apart and instead of looking for a way forward from these things they prefer to retreat and um, defend themselves I think you get the same with the clubs you know my club I, I was on a sort of fan engagement panel at my club but it it kind of felt like the main aim of this club, of this panel was to um, create a create a way of getting more money from fans on game days, which is fantastic. <laughs> it's great, but actually giving this group the tools to go out and engage with the wider Wigan fan base 
was was a difficult job to do, um, unfortunately. And and I just think I'm not sure clubs go deep enough, and what they could do is go deeper into the kind of things they do. But instead, they tend to focus on small groups of people that they can take along with the decisions they've already made rather than use the fans in the decision-making process. So I, I do think that some sort of um, fan organisation that links directly into Super League board, you know, Super League boardrooms um, would be a step forward because, and I'm not saying fans have all the right ideas and all the right answers, we certainly don't, uh, you know, if, if fans had our say we'd, we'd, we'd ban games on Thursday nights when actually that's the one spot where we have kind of a chance to dominate the sports viewing market for that day of the week and it's a day that people tend to be at home rather than either at other games or at other social events etc so it's the most captive audience we've got and fans don't like it the most because we don't like traveling across the m62 so there's you know fans don't always strategically get things right but they need to be involved in the conversation and decision making process um and that's where we get it wrong in, in our sport at the moment we, we instead kind of react to the angry fans and try and take a small group of fans on a journey with each club, but we don't actually speak to the to the wider fan base and try and understand how fans can help the sport move forward as well. Okay, that's a good answer. Uh, I might go I might go across to to the other mark from Outlawed and and just uh, similar similar question. Basically, how do you think Super League and the clubs can get more fan engagement? You know, what kind of measures can they make to to bring more people into the sport. Yeah, I mean, Mark's right in what you're saying. A lot of clubs target the fan base that are already there. So you're not really growing um, your fan base. All you're doing is you're trying to appease a smaller group of people. Um, but if we look back to the kind of the early 2000s and, and the great stuff that Bradford Bulls were doing and all their pre-match entertainment, it was very much an NFL style of, of ideas. And... You know that worked. I'm not saying that's going to work now because of stuff like social media and that kind of idea, and people are probably a little bit less engaged. But it, there just needs to be something different. Now, one of the big things that we probably don't shout about enough, and we probably criticise the most, is the product of the game itself. So, you know, again, back during the, the early 2000s, as as Mark says, you know, crowds were booming. The product was great. You know, there was huge hits on the field. And and it really brought about that kind of warrior mentality, if you like. Um, and, you know, it, I suppose it felt like mainstream media were, were more engaged in it as well, which then obviously brings in kind of fans from, from outside. Now, the product, rightly or wrongly, um, you know, has changed. Certain bits probably don't work and certain bits are, are certainly there to, you know, protect the players that are actually playing the game for, for obvious reasons. So... You know, we, we for me, we don't shout enough about the product that we actually put on the field and, you know, the big players. And, you know, I've, I've read a little bit on social media of, of people kind of criticising the fact that we don't have, in inverted commas, big names. Um, I suppose that the biggest name that, that we had of recent times was Sam Burgess. And, you know, a lot of people put that down to him going over to a reunion and, and obviously some of the criticism he took there. So I suppose fan engagement, it comes... I don't know, it's not an easy question to answer because it comes from, from kind of all aspects. So it comes from your, your social media, it comes from, you know, your traditional kind of 
I don't want to use the word door knocking, but you know, you, you leaflet through the door. It comes from word of mouth. And I think, you know, if we can if we can showcase the product, I suppose a little bit like we did with the, the England France game, um, on the BBC, for example, you know, prime time on a Saturday afternoon. But we need more of that. We need more engagement. We need more um, you know, potentially more Super League games on a, a Sunday afternoon on a free to view channel like Channel Four. So that as you're you're kind of flicking through the, the TV on a Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, you kind of go, Oh, oh what's that? Oh, that's that rugby league that I've heard about. And the more kind of exposure we have of, of that kind will drive fan engagement, will drive crowds. But what we can't do is do the opposite of what we're doing now and just leave behind kind of that small fan base of, of traditional fans. We need to engage everyone. Now, the answer to that is I don't know how you do that. Um <laughs> it's it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, well that no, that that's fair enough. Um so uh I'll ask Phil you'll be you're the uh last person in our list. Sorry about that, Phil. I made you I made you go first and then last on this one, but uh that's fine. Uh yeah, so fan engagement and crowds uh, your thoughts on how we can engage with more fans, um, how we can get crowd numbers up. I mean, obviously, crowd numbers are not the be-all and end-all, but obviously, fan engagement is the most important part. So how do we interest more people in the sport? I think you've got a two-pronged problem at the moment, which the sport has never had before, and it's it's been touched on by the other guys. One is that we've always been pretty sure of our core identity, um, but they're the people that aren't turning up at the moment. So everything we've tried to do in the past has been to attract the new fan. Um, so th- there's a dichotomy there, and there's some shoring up that needs doing for sure. I think it comes down to probably two or three things. One is, um, and we're going to come back to this with every single topic, money. Um, we just don't have enough of it. We've never had enough of it. And because we don't have sufficient money to do what we want to do, then the bit that always gets cut first is marketing. Uh, because there isn't a direct return on it. It's an investment. Um, and when times are, are tight, um, or, or perhaps even when they're not, when you've got money and you decide to spend it on your player pool and, and not promoting the wider sport, then um, unfortunately it just makes it harder to make that noise without some investment in marketing. You've got to sell the sport. To sell the sport, you've got to have a spokesperson. You've got to make it hip. You've got to make it a bit sexy. Um, we don't do any of that. Um, and that, again, is, is purely the fault of the fact that we just never spend enough time deciding what we want to be, when we want to play, what message we want to put out. And I think that that's the other part of the point about this. It's all about identity. I think you've got to know who you are in each era that you play. Um, what you represent, who you appeal to, what your USPs are. I think we've lost that at the moment. Um, and, and that's the first thing we've got to find out. You can do that perhaps with uh, fan engagement, but I think it's just a wider problem for the sport as a whole. In this current uh, business-led, modern, professional, global sporting environment, where does rugby league fit? What does it want to be? And particularly in this country where it's competing so hard with the likes of Premier League football, um, with the Rugby Union Internationals that we're seeing at the moment, with cricket that's about to go on an Ashes tour. Where is Rugby League? You know, what what do we want to be? I think the other thing to add into all this about how do you engage more people and and spectators particularly is there just is a general air of distrust. That's partly in the sport, uh, maybe the people who run it, uh, maybe the way it has been run rather than individuals themselves, but also in society here at the moment. We, we are just um, 
again a nation that is clearly on the back foot in so many areas and and, and that is reflected in sport and and clearly in rugby league all right thanks for that uh so the next question is is about digital marketing so i particularly want to ask this question about digital marketing because from an NRL perspective, and I know the dirty word in England at the moment, we're not allowed to be the NRL uh, because, you know, we, we cancelled the World Cup apparently, um, which, yeah, we pretty much did. Uh, but basically, uh, over here we've got uh, we've got an NRL, Telstra, like a Telstra NRL app, or whatever it's called, um, we did recently. We've got, you know, quite a lot of, quite a good digital arm, um, although... Recently, there's a few moves over here to, to try and pull that digital arm apart. But I know that over over there, you've got the Our League app. Um, but the one thing I, I find from, I mean, I don't know if you find it, but from, from coming over, from overseas, uh, I have a lot of trouble with the actual website and and how, you know, like I don't, I don't see a lot of engagement from the actual sport itself in terms of social media. The most social media I see is from you know guys like you guys, the podcasters. Um, so I'll, I'll ask the um, outward mark. Um, what do you, in terms of the in terms of the digital marketing? Is there strategies that the that Super League can put into place that would that would be you know would help the Super League? Um, is there certain things that you think they should need to do in terms of in terms of the digital arm? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's always stuff that we can be doing, but you know, you're right in what you're saying. Sometimes it feels like Super League is it's a prime example. So sometimes it feels like Super League when they use their social medias, it's very few and far between. And you know, I find anyway with the the NRL um, sort of social media, it seems to be all the time, every day. There's always something. You know, there's there's always videos of. You know, big hit. There's always videos of season launches, um, just to let you know this is what. I mean, there was one recently from the NRL that that was just purely telling us when the season was starting, and it became a minute and a half video that everyone got really engaged in. Um, in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of the sort of the website and everything like that, what we used to have was we used to have a dedicated Super League website, uh, which I believe was SuperLeague.co.uk at the time. Um, what the RFL and, and Super League did was they kind of condensed everything into a, a rugby league website. I think it's rugby-league or rugbyleague.co.uk, which is great because actually it's probably the right to do to put everything into one one place and it gives you that branding of, of the sport. But again, there needs to be more engagement on it. And we kind of rely on traditionalist fans to download the Our League app, which sometimes is all right and sometimes is terrible. Um, it worked for me personally. It worked quite well during lockdown because um, you were able to, as a, a season pass holder, for example, you were able to access uh, live streams of, of games. And I think we could do more to shout about that because actually, you know, everyone's on the phone all the time. Everyone's on social media. You know, you, you walk down the street and you, you'll never catch eye contact with anyone because they're always on the phone. So, you know, if, if you're sat, you know, we, we kind of need to shout about that a bit more because that's one way going back to kind of fan engagement that, you know, we, we have something, a platform there that could potentially put out, you know, free community games or could put out games that we might not normally see like your league one games. And, you know, if, if we shout about that on social media, you know, as a, 
as a sport as a whole, not just the, the governing body, then again, it, it goes back to fan engagement. So for me, we can do a lot more with, with digital engagement, with um, digital marketing, because that's the way that the world's going at the moment. And I know uh, Warrington launched something this week, and I don't, if I'm honest, I don't quite understand what it is, but it seems almost like a, a trading card type idea, but it's all digital. Um, I know it's something that the NBA have done over in America, and apparently it works really, really well. So stuff like that is, is really innovative, but then we shoot ourselves in the foot by making George Williams £300 to buy. You know, so it's we come up with some really good ideas and then all of a sudden we come up with some terrible ideas. And it, it seems to me that one follows the other and it's not always the right way around. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree totally. And I, I think with, with the opinion, like the what you're talking about shooting themselves in the foot, there's there's that perception of trying to make the money now rather than trying to make the money later. And I think that's probably what some, some of you, I'm probably answering some of the questions, some of what uh, maybe Phil and the other market are going to say. Uh, so we'll go, we'll go to Phil next. Um, the same, same basic question, you know, digital marketing, marketing um, what's your opinion of the current state of it and what, what do you think they can do with it? Well, like um Outlawed Mark, I'm extremely grateful you didn't ask me what a non-fungible token was um, because I have read that press release four times and I'm none the wiser and I'm pretty sure it's nothing to do with the press release it's to do with the age of the person that's reading it um, I just think we spend too much time preaching to the converted um, our Super League clubs here uh, regurgitate the same message from the centre um, so if you do you know, log on to, to most of them to get your news and, and your information. You get the same message 12 times by by which time you wanted to throw your phone out of the window. So, we, you know, the most innovative I've seen um, in, in recent times is Halifax, um, again, who are a, you know, a, a championship part-time club who've, who've made a great French signing and, and just did a very funny two-minute video uh, or, or, or digital offering on, on how that, you know, one, one player is greeting another player. That, to me, is brilliant. Uh, but again, we've got to decide who who are we digitally marketing at. If we keep going back to the same well, um, then obviously it's going to run dry. If it's a newer, younger audience, then you know what what we're perhaps doing on Twitch with the the women's game, what we what we need to do on TikTok a bit more with some of the players is is exploit that. Um, again, I'm probably of an age where I'm the wrong person to be at. Asking what does that audience want? What what I am concerned about though is um, just the amount of subscriptions that the core audience might be being asked to pay for. Clearly, that you know, if you follow a Super League team or or the highest profile of the sport, that's a Sky subscription. Um, if if you want to follow your Championship team, you're now going to need a, a Premier. Uh, sports subscription um if uh, you know you want to watch stuff on the bbc you do need a license for that that's a third subscription and at some point if our leagues have any value whatsoever it's got to become a digital season ticket that would be a fourth subscription if it does and if you start having to pay for our league they're serious going to look about they're serious going to have to look about what offer they put on there the production values the games that they show the times that they they put them on so i just think there isn't a digital strategy in the same way going right back to your very first question there's never been a strategy on structure um, and until there is we're, we're just playing around with it we can all give you our ideas but actually what is the media strategy for rugby league yep yeah, very true all right we'll go i'll go straight across to um mark from super league pod um same question basically about digital marketing yeah uh well the guys have hit on some really key points there i think um one 
thing that overwhelmingly comes across is we start we start something and never see it fully through, um, and that's what we need to stop doing. One of the major reasons why I think that happens is money. Um, you know, breaking through to that next level of, of things needs investment that we don't have money there to, to put into it. Any sort of job that you see advertised in the kind of so, RFL or within clubs tends to be either at, at best a graduate job so you're getting someone fresh out of university who's using it as a stepping stone to somewhere else we've lost some really talented young people um, from our game in, in that environment from some clubs or from the RFL itself actually who could have could have if there were jobs for them to step up into and a pay bracket for them to step up to into could have stayed in the sport but we just don't have those jobs we don't have that money available so you're constantly cycling through through that as a, as a problem we do have a great opportunity with the change in the in the rights deal the the, the removal of the exclusivity um i think that gives the sport an opportunity and uh to to be able to get more stuff out there in different ways um but like phil says we've got to be careful about how we how we cost that to the fan um but one of the the key things is creating content that can be shared outside of our sport that's what you can use your digital you know your digital marketplace for and the halifax content is, is a good example if anyone saw that they'd find it quite funny maybe a non-rugby league fan wouldn't want to sit for a minute and a half of Kevin Leroy, but you know, forty seconds of Kevin Leroy a trimmed out version. I'm not sure, but um, but that sort of stuff. If you if you condense things, um, clips of great feats that players do. If you create thing, if you create things like that, that then if you can foster a relationship with a, you know, some of these other accounts on on the so <clears throat> sorry out there in the in the social media space, then if they're going to start, if they would start sharing these little bits of extraordinary content that our players can create that that is your digital marketing strategy but unfortunately i don't think the sport has the capacity to go out there and engage at the moment that's that's where the opportunity lies going out there and engaging with other media bodies just to simply share some of the content we do because we can't create good content yeah uh, look on content i i had i mean i was on a another podcast uh, we were talking about there and all more than anything else, but uh, a point that I made, and I, and I don't know whether it would work, is um, you know I know that there's a lot of young people who listen to uh, people who are you know influencers on on you know, YouTube and Instagram and things like this, and I said you know it, basically they promote things, they they get you know they get sent this thing and they say hey look how great this is, I don't understand why you couldn't send them some, you know, footage of, of the Super League and they could, you know, watch it and react to it and, you know, go, oh, look how great this is. And then there's a little thing at the bottom saying, click here and you go get sent to a website which, which shows you more information, you know what I mean? Something like that. And, I mean, the NRL doesn't do that either, but I think Rugby League as a whole could do something like that. And it's, of, it's obviously a way to get into new markets as well because there's a lot of, like... You know, I hear a lot of you guys talking about the aging demographic of, of people in, in England as well. You know, the ones watching Super League are getting older and maybe not as many younger people sort of getting into it. Um, I've got two topics that I think lead into each other. So I'm going to put them together. 
the topics now for, forgive me because I'm Australian so I call it grassroots but basically your your local game um, and the other one is expansionism versus traditionalism so pretty much the question is how do you foster the you know the people who have been your your backbone for so long while always while also reaching out and trying to expand the sport so how do you keep your traditional clubs happy and your expansion clubs happy at the t- same time um, is is there any strategies do you think they could that anyone could do for that um, I think I might go to I might go to Phil again so um, basically Phil I it's a little bit of a harder question, but basically, um, where do you think the happy ground between expansionism and traditionalism is? Well, firstly, you're assuming that they're mutually exclusive. And the first thing is that we need to say that they're not. That mm-hmm. just because something needs to necessarily expand um, doesn't mean that you have to take it away from somewhere. I think, again, this is, a, this is an issue that is far deeper than being able to answer this question succinctly. It's about what our history is, where we grew up from, um, what were the support networks for that at the time um, that we came into being, and are they there? Uh, also taking a, a realistic look and saying that, you know, if if there are some trees in your current forest that uh, through maybe natural wastage are beginning to, to die or the roots are shrinking back a bit, it only makes sense to plant some new trees somewhere else which will actually maintain those that you've already got so um, I think it's partly how you sell it Um, I think we we prefer the word growth rather than expansion because expansion now has this um, pejorative link to it I think the the, the other issue that um, goes back only the the mere 126 years is it's something we've always tried to do but without wishing to sound again like a broken record going back to everything we've spoken about so far we have never had an expansion strategy we and we've done it again with cornwall in the last couple of weeks it's very much the stick in the pin in the map Uh, it's making some assumptions that just because somebody likes an oval shaped ball they're all going to be attracted to rugby league and at rugby league of a certain standard Uh, um, I, i think we've actually we've seen in the in what's happening with league one and the way that's developing at the moment which is this expansion tool of the sport which to me makes no sense you don't start at the bottom where you need the most resource to expand you, you actually come up with the, the the criteria for investment at the top level and if it works that's where you do it at but um we've seen coventry come up with a model whereby they have gone from being based around the city putting in some some routes to becoming a region um, we've got to cornwall who want to be a region but have got no roots and again to me that just highlights the fact that as a sport in this country we do not have an expansion strategy and a plan Uh, grassroots is another interesting one because again the community game is is suffering in the areas where it has been strongest uh, which which you would say then clearly we need to then provide an opportunity for players of uh, both genders and all ages to play throughout the country you'd be you'd be naive and, and perhaps a little bit willful if you didn't do that um, but we had something called the rugby league conference that actually fulfilled that brief and in terms of what it cost the the RFL it was minimal uh, in terms of the overall investment that they make in the game, it was virtually referees' appointments and a disciplinary structure. But it got from being 
almost a notional idea of having community-based teams throughout not only England, it spread to Wales, Scotland, um, uh, and, and there was even talk of Ireland joining at one stage, to, to being 200 teams. Now, again, if you're going to microscopically look at the standard of every team that played in that, there would have been a huge disparity because the needs of each area were completely different. But unless you invest in something like that, unless you take champion schools where we had a, a, a school from Surrey win that competition against a school from Castleford, which almost was a microcosm of how we need to look at the sport overall. Um, but w- you know that school in Surrey, I suspect, doesn't play the game anymore. I suspect that all the guys that played in that winning Surrey team are not involved in rugby league anymore because we, we then stopped having development officers. So I think it's all about without wishing to keep going back to the same thing what do we want from the sport how do we balance what we've got which is partly what will nourish us and keep us going but also what we need which is um, tapping into new markets which every single business and every single sport is doing especially after what we've all been through Yep, very true very very true and and like you said a lot of these topics you know I could have just asked you all you know how do you fix Super League and you could have talked for 10 minutes probably probably hit the same points over and over again um so I'll go to I'll go to Mark Super League pod Mark again um it's like I said it's a little bit of an uh, it's a little bit of a double prong it's it's all about the the community game and the grassroots and then you know the traditional areas versus what, what we're calling the expansion areas how how do we basically do both both at the same time I was going to use that. Um, <laughs> the, the, I'm not an expert on the community game. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't live in an area where rugby league is strong, which is ridiculous because I live between Cumbria and the then the traditional M62 Heartland I live right between the two. So it, it it seems nonsensical. But there's there's no real there's not a big rugby league presence where I live. So I'm not I'm not an expert on the community game. Um, at all, but the way I've always sort of seen it is back to money strategy, uh, money being maybe the, the biggest one, but the, the two most important prongs of our sport for me, and, and I, I do love the semi-professional game and all of that, I'm not taking away from that, but it's the top division and it's the grassroots, so the two most important parts for me, and that's where your strategy needs to focus at um, and I, I see the top division clubs should have some responsibility for fostering the community game in their local areas and then the governing body um, should have a responsibility uh, but should be given adequate funding to carry out that responsibility for the grassroots outside of the areas that are particularly covered by the top division clubs. Now some of the top division clubs also have expanded into having relationships outside of their local area. We've seen um, Salford have got some some good stuff going on with Wales at the moment that Wigan have done in the past, Castleford have done some good stuff in Cumbria it seems like um, Leeds do the festival for all the young players don't they and they do that out in Lincolnshire um, so there's there's things that happen um, outside of the Heartlands by the clubs but I think the Rugby Football League needs to be the, the main responsibility about, about that and development officers is clearly the thing that's missing from the from the the system now that we had in place 15 years ago um, so if we can find a way to fund development officers um, to to help generate community clubs build them up and then you, that can produce players 
players and it, to me it doesn't really we're, we're a small country it doesn't really matter if you produce a player in Southampton they can play for Leeds or Hull it doesn't really that, you know it's not geographically against the, the realms of possibility but we're not producing those players in those areas because we don't have development officers anymore that's the key for me to balance it out okay yeah, that's very well. That's a very good answer. We'll, we'll go to the other Mark um, from Outlawed Rugby League podcast. Uh, so, Mark, same same sort of question. Um, I mean, I know that you've obviously you've played for you know teams in in sort of you know in a heartland, or I suppose Sheffield's a semi heartland area, and then you've played for for Gateshead as well, which is you know almost treated as expansion. So, um, what's your thought of you know traditional areas, expansion areas, and and how the community game in um, happens between them yeah look I mean Mark and Phil hit the nail on the head when it comes to um, development officers so I I grew up in the northeast of England um, so up in Newcastle and you're right in what you say in rugby league wasn't a sport that people really talked about I got into it uh, because of my uh, my dad's side of the family uh, he took me along to a sorry there was a flyer came into school uh, would you believe um, bearing in mind we only played rugby union at school uh, which, by the way, I was terrible at. Um, so there was a flyer came into school and it was for a club that's still going now, Whitley Bay Barbarians. And I went down on the Saturday morning with my dad. I, I was about 10 years old and I absolutely loved it. Fell in love with the game, fell in love with everything, fell in love with the fact that, you know, we got knocked about, fell in love with the fact that I could knock other people about. And that, that was kind of where my love for the game grew. As we went through kind of school and everything like that we went into to high school and again we were only playing rugby union however the <clears throat> excuse me the, the sport of rugby league was was growing in terms of development officers and everything like that so all of a sudden we played in a, a tournament that would have essentially led to the the champion schools um and that was great because we went down to gated stadium where where gated thunder at the time were playing and it, it, you know it was a big festival. Now I know that Newcastle Thunder, as they are now, have similar things. And I'm not saying it's it's just exclusive to to Newcastle Thunder. I know there are a lot of other clubs that that do fantastic things like that. Um, but for me, if we're going to have development officers, one of the biggest things is they need to be accountable. So I know all you guys here, you know, we we all have day jobs, and you know we've got to be accountable for everything we do. You know, my job. In particular, if I don't do what, what I say I'm going to do, then you know I'm not, I'm not going to be in a, a job much longer. So that was one of the things with development officers. We were kind of finding that there was no, I suppose there was no structure for a management system. So they were kind of taking their, I don't know how much money they got paid a year, but they were taking their wage. And you know this is probably a little bit disrespectful to, to some development officers, but some of them were kind of taking their wage, pulling over on the side of the motorway, having a coffee on the RFL, having a you know a cake on the RFL, and not really doing what, what they were supposed to be doing. Now, for me, you know, Sheffield was a, a, a different kettle of fish altogether um, because you'd like to think that Sheffield would be a massively engaged city within rugby league, and, and honestly, it's probably not. And there's a, a die-hard core... Um, sort of section of fans for, for Sheffield Eagles. Um, but interestingly, I now live in Nottingham and we have a couple of, of um, community clubs here, one being Nottingham Outlaws. And the engagement that they have, you know, I go down there coaching, you know, some of the kids and it's it's great because 
there is a real kind of family atmosphere and it feels like a I suppose it feels like a traditional club. It feels like when we used to go playing in the Yorkshire League, for example, at Stanningley or, you know, somewhere like that, and everyone's engaged in the club. However, it's it's that one bubble. So, you know, for me, we need to get back to stuff like development officers. Again, it all goes back to money. Um, but if we're going to take this seriously and we're going to try and, you know, bring through players from the South East, bring through players from Wales, from Scotland, we need to have some form of structure where people are coming into schools, where they're going into community clubs, where community clubs are being created. I know there was some great stuff done by um, the Rugby League World Cup 2021 by creating some community clubs. Um, you know, we, we need all that. And then from, from a, I suppose, a professional perspective, if you like, I'm a, a big advocate for expansion. But at the same time, we need to make sure expansion's done right, and we need to make sure that money-wise, you know, these these clubs can sustain themselves. So, for example, Catalan Dragons do really well, but you know, their first year they they didn't do so well, but they were obviously uh, protected from um, relegation. And then, you know, look at them now; they've got to a grand final, so they do have a, a good financial backing and everything like that. Some of the expansion clubs that we've had before, potentially not. Um, you know, I looked at it. There was an article on um, on Love Rugby League talking about the expansion clubs, and one of the clubs that they missed out, and I mentioned, was was Northampton Rebels. Now they never came into fruition, and, and what would have happened to them, I don't know. But you know, we obviously need to. That was at a time when we were trying to expand rapidly, but I suppose we probably didn't put as much thought into how much money that that club potentially could bring into the sport but also how much you know they've got to set up that club as well so like i say i'm a big big fan of expansion um as long as it's done sustainably um you know and and that's no disrespect to to any of the the yorkshire clubs or the, the lancashire clubs or anything like that because everyone's got their place and you know a lot of people had a, a big issue if featherson for example had been promoted um, i think it's great for the game that toulouse have gone up and, and for me personally I think it's the right result however if Featherstone had gone up fair play they you know they've won that game that's what what should have happened but you know again there's, there's no easy answer to this but if we start grassroots wise in schools in primary schools get people engaged in the sport then you know that's that's where you kind of set your foundations for for expansion it's where you set your foundations for the future of the game okay cool so uh, I'm going to move on to a, another topic. I'm going to put two topics together that I had here uh, because I a little bit of what you actually was talking about, or you, you were all talking about then, um, and it does lead from that is you know the setting up and the foundation of these clubs and and who's behind it. So from what I can gather, from what I can see from you know my my little area down in Sydney where I look from you know thousands of kilometres away, uh, I can say miles if it's better for you. For you guys in the imperial world uh but from such a long distance away the i mean pretty much every super league club if maybe not maybe every super league club is is pretty much run by a one person one businessman like it's a you know the ownership of a club is is really a you know dictatorship you've got one person running it um, and then they then collectively come together to to form you know super league board um and you know there's a 
there's that perception, you know, if, I mean, obviously we have, you know, in the NRL we have CEOs and things like that, but there's more of a perception that the club is, is, a, is a club rather than run by one person. And, I mean, recently we've had things like, um, you know, London going part-time because you're the long-term owner of London doesn't want to put too, as much money into it anymore. Like, he's put a lot of money in for a long time. Um, so is that model... Of, of the governance of the sport and the ownership of clubs the best way for Super League? Should they be encouraging more, you know, these investors? Should should be looking for, you know, more of the, you know, the Salford, the Salford owner, you know, more of the uh, the guy who's going to form the, the, Cum- the Cumbrian Lakers, you know, that sort of owner? Or should it be a different kind of model? And also in terms of should they have one-twelfth of the of the voice of rugby league um, in terms of a board. Uh, I'll go to, probably the best one to go to is uh, Mark Fippley Pod, if I can go to you. I honestly uh, don't, don't have a strong answer here because I just don't know. Um, what, what I do know is um, people like Marwan Kukash, people like Eric Perez, who, who've come into our sport, these big dreamers, um, Perez less because he hasn't got any actual money himself, but Kukash certainly had money himself. They want a say in where that money's going. Uh, we probably need to look at investment at the league level rather than at the club levels um, to actually allow any of these people to have a say. But then whether or not they do any of the other things we talked about regarding strategy of owning the actual game, you know, from top to bottom, and, and all of those things we've talked about, I don't know because they'd be looking for a return on investment. Um, so, I, I, I'm not really a big fan of rich people, so I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, 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 they're out for themselves and not for the sport. We need people who are out for the sport, um, but we probably need new people who are out for the sport because we don't trust the old people. Okay, that, that's fine. As, as an answer, that's, that's, that's an answer. So... Uh, we'll take that. I'll, I'll go. I'll go to the other mark, um, Outlawed uh, Mark. Uh, basically, same question. You know, should should these owners of clubs be the ones making the decisions? Should the board, you know, should the governance of the of the sport be different? Um, and should we be encouraging more people to invest singular owners? Should Super League owners own Super League? Short answer: No. Um, I think because there's too much self-invested interest in there. Um, you need the governing body, especially at the moment with, with everything that's going on, to step in and, and kind of put their foot down of, of how the game needs to be run and, and everything like that, or should I say how they want it to be run. In terms of clubs themselves, um, I, we actually experienced this at, at Gateshead at the time. So we, uh, the first grade, had just won promotion to what was then the championship uh, from uh, National League One. And the year after they played really well, I think it was 2009, um, they had players like Nick Youngquest, Paul Franz, um, Chris Kayla from the NRL. So they, they had some really good players. The, the sole investor or the, the main uh, stakeholder was actually a company uh, that was owned by racing driver Jensen Button. Um, someone tried to buy the stake, Jensen Button basically said no, and he pulled out of the club and that's why the club went bust. So the the one owner thing potentially doesn't work. We we definitely need to 
try and engage more people to invest in clubs. Of course we do, because you know, again, they're going to have a self-invested interest of if I'm putting money into this club, it needs to be successful. So they will do everything in their power to make it successful. But at the same time, you know, you, you're still going to have your chairman, you're still going to have you know potentially a CEO, etc. Um, and there will, you know, there will be a, a majority shareholder like any company. Um, but I think we that's that's one of the things that we forget is rugby league clubs are companies, and you know any successful business or company, you know, doesn't necessarily have just one person at the helm. You know, it has a board of directors, it has, um, you know, outside investors, and and that's kind of the the structure that that we need to go to because if argument's sake, I know he's obviously not involved anymore, but if if Kukash was was at Salford and then all of a sudden pulls the plug, what happens to Salford? They they go down the pan. You know, whereas actually if Kukash is there with all his money and, you know, he's got his, his friend there with some more money and then there's another investor from outside that goes, actually, this game's great. Kukash pulls out. Well, actually, Salford is still okay because they've got other investors that are, are going to keep that, that club afloat. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. Okay, so we'll... I'll move across to Phil now. So same thing, um, you know, the ownership of clubs, should we be encouraging investors, single investors? How should we be encouraging people? And obviously the governance, should those people be getting, you know, the one-twelfth share that they do at the moment? I think we're getting to the crux of everything that we're talking about at the moment. It, it has to come from the governance of the sport. So we can talk about the digital marketing. We can talk about the fan engagement. We can talk about the length of the season. But if your governance isn't right, um, and if you're not going to decide what your priorities are for investment, then everything else is just probably firefighting. And we've done that for too long. Um, clearly, the words vested interest have been used by both marks. And, and, and that's the issue. Um, that it doesn't matter necessarily who these people are, but if they have a say in the competition that they are a part of, then you're almost self-limiting before you start. So I do think we have a need for an independent commission of some sort here, um, which is not to say that the, the ARLC is, is necessarily the right one, although that clearly was borrowed from uh, AFL. So clearly there is a template there. Um, and I think the disappointment with the strategic reviews we're having at the moment is that that isn't being considered as an option. We, we are looking at, you know, the same people coming up with a, a, a different solution to the problems they've always had to deal with, not um, seeing it from a fresh pair of eyes. I would say we need an independent commission of maybe five or at most seven people of which the Super League clubs would have one vote in that. They have to have a say. Uh, these owners that put in the, the money uh, deserve to have some kind of a, a, a consensus of what they want. Uh, at the moment, part of the problem we've got is they, don't, they can't agree with each other whether they want tea or coffee in a board meeting. So how the heck we expect them to, to move the sport forward, I don't know. But yeah, external finance is going to be key in all of this, whether it's equity finance or, or some other, uh, other sort. They're going to want to say in that, that independent commission, as, as much as the, the owners are, that we've got to create the structure where that happens we've also got to decide 
what is the initial responsibility of a Super League club owner? What does a Super League club need to look like? And if it doesn't have a women's section, a PDRL section, an LDRL section, and a, and a functioning foundation that can get into the community, which starts to answer some of the questions that you asked before about grassroots, it's not, not going to be done necessarily by the clubs and the staff themselves. It's going to be done by their charitable aspect, which runs alongside of it. Um, so I think we, we need they need to put their own houses in order once we give them the template of what we think a Super League club should look like. They should then link with uh, a League One club, they should, which gets into the whole debate about feeder clubs, which is a, something we don't want to have over here. They should then link with uh, community clubs in their own area, maybe a development region, maybe a nation in Europe, maybe a nation in Africa. You know, all of that should be the responsibility, first and foremost, of the Super League club owners, not necessarily the direction of the sport. Then... Um, for any new owner you bring in, I would say there has to be a non-refundable bond to the sport. So, you know, without you know using Eric Perez as an example, he just happens to be the latest incarnation of a lot of people we've seen uh, through the years who've, who've, who've promised a lot but can't deliver because they haven't got the resource behind it. The first question for an Eric Perez-type character would be, if you can lodge £2 million non-refundable in an, uh, a, a, a rugby league account that will be used for development purposes, if you don't fulfil your obligations, you do not get that money back, then I think you're making a start at looking at all of the issues um, that we can solve rather than all of us sitting in our own respective ivory towers and having this great idea of what we'd love the game to look like because all our all our ideas are valid, but actually it's only when the structure changes that, that the game can bring in the ones that are going to bring about effective change. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. The the only point I worry about is is putting two million dollars in a bank account. Um, it may well go missing very quickly. Um, that's that's a that's a definite worry. All right, so look, the, I think we've gone through a lot of topics on on Super League itself. This this last one, this last question that I want to put to all of you is is kind of pushing outside the boundary. So I think Phil, you kind of pushed onto it then, but basically I. The, the question I've got is how should Super League and the English game itself engage with the international game um, and what kind of responsibilities does it have for both the international game and also for, you know, what's called the home countries, you know, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and promoting the game and trying to grow it in those countries. Um, so I think we're up to uh, uh, Mark from Outlawed Rugby League. I think you'd be the first one to answer, so I'll let you answer that. Sorry, mate. My um, my internet dropped out, uh, but I've I've just come back in. Um, I understand you talk about the the international game and, and mm. kind of how that affects home nations. Apologies, mate. No, that's okay. So, yeah, we, in terms of the international game, we need to be better. Um, we need to have more games, and obviously the the World Cup this year would have been a great um, great thing. Potentially, it's it, you know it could be great that it's going to be next year because we can engage a little bit more, build again, back on all the, the stuff that we've talked about over the next 12 months. Um, the home nations need more help from the governing body, um, I think, personally. Wales has so much potential. You know, obviously, we saw that with, with the Crusaders um, when they were in Super League. We see it now with North, what, now North Wales Crusaders and, and, to a certain extent, West Wales Raiders as well. But on the flip side of that, you know, West Wales Raiders last year 
struggled in their last game. They went up to Cumbria and had to um, take on essentially trialists from some of the amateur teams in Cumbria. So, you know, it doesn't look great on the sport and that's no disrespect to West Wales because I know they, they do do some great stuff. But, you know, Wales is a is a rugby hotbed and, and traditionally, you know, we've seen some great players come out of Wales. You know, even now, you, you're Regan Grace. Um, you know, Clive Sullivan was the first ever um, black captain of a of a British team in any sport. And, and that's, you know, and he's come from Wales. Uh, you know, Billy Boston, etc. There's been some fantastic players come out of Wales and, and I'm convinced that there's players in that country that would easily transition out of, for example, rugby union, um, would easily transition into our sport if we gave them the opportunity. And I think Scotland's the same. When rugby union have just beaten, um, I, I believe, I think it was the, I, I don't know, some, some team from Australia or something like that. Um, so, you know, <laughs> There's some great players there, and it, it all comes down to opportunity. And, and Ireland, you know, I absolutely love Ireland, and, and some of my episodes on the podcast have, have been with some of the club's representatives from Ireland. And you know, they're so passionate about the game. And you know, Ireland's a, a little bit different anyway because they've obviously they've got Gaelic football, they've got rugby union, they've got you know rugby league to a certain extent, and they're passionate for that kind of contact sport. So again, for me, it's all opportunity. And if we tap into that opportunity and, you know, there's going to be players that are coming out of um, academy systems of, of premiership rugby union teams, for example, that aren't going to have their contracts renewed, give them a chance. Give them a chance playing in the championship or League One or, you know, Super League reserves. It's not going to hurt. And, you know, if we, if we you know, I don't know, we tap into 100 players and 10 of those end up in Super League, for me, that's a that go into Super League then boost the game because you're going to have Welsh-born players playing for Wales, strong Scottish players playing for Scotland. You're then going to have you know building rivalries between those teams. England come into the mix. All of a sudden, you can have a home nations, four nations, if you like. And then you come to the World Cup, and I don't know the, the 2025 World Cup, hopefully in France, we might see Scotland beat New Zealand, and that for me is is what we've got to kind of aspire to okay that's a good answer uh so i will go i'll go to phil next um and same basic question you know how how important it is for you know the the english authorities i suppose you call them to engage with the rest of of the united kingdom and also to engage internationally you know in the international game I think we're looking at that slightly the wrong way around. I think the international game is the pinnacle, it is the priority, it is the cut through. Um, it is going to get us the, the digital engagement. Um, and, and actually, that means that you've got to have a proper financed and well resourced international federation, um, which I, I think has a purpose to serve. But I'm not sure how much power it actually has. It, it only gets its money really from staging things like World Cups. But, you know, I think the other thing we've all got to, to bear in here is that in terms of the international game and how you promote it, England or Great Britain hasn't beaten Australia um, you know, in a series for 50 years. So we've allowed ourselves to marginalise the international game and the sport as a whole has to buy into the international game. It's, it's not merely the responsibility of the RFL. I do think when it comes to development strategies that will help the international game, then your domestic competition is very important. If you're just going to stick a couple of teams in Wales and leave it to themselves, 
that's not going to help the Welsh national team. If, if you're going to bring in one team in France and put them in Super League, that's not going to help the French national team. There's now a second. That may do. Um, but again, it's more about how do you get um, an, an equalising of talent, but a calendar in the international game that everyone buys into that makes that the priority. Uh, once you do that, everything else will start to fall into place. I think one of the things that happened here under the regime of Richard Lewis was that he realised that you know Sport England will fund England, Sport Wales, Sport Scotland, Sport Ireland will fund those nations and there has to be a little bit of divorcing from the, the RFL centre here to those regions. What the RFL has responsibility for is are we going to have a League One team or a Championship team in Ireland? When is that going to come in? How is that going to work? Which players are going to play for it? Um, how is it going to be financed? What positive discrimination does it need? And we'll do the same in the Scottish borders. Um, what, what, you know, is Wales the Celtic Crusaders model for Wales, as the Catalan Dragons model is for that part of France and, and northern Spain? Is absolutely right. I think that's why the Midland Hurricanes works. We need to for growth to be regional rather than necessarily town or city based. So there has to be some planning for that. And again, I, I know it sounds terrible because my reply to every single question you you've asked um, over this period of time is. What is our strategy? And until it's put together and outveiled and, and unveiled and interlocked, and international rugby league is at the very, very top of it, then not too much will change in the short term. That's that's fine. You can keep answering the question in the same way because it's the same answer each time. It, it makes perfect sense. Uh, we'll finish with, with Mark from Super League Pod. Uh, so same question, basically... I mean, I know Australia are the bad guys at the moment, and I feel very, very bad about it. Right now, we should be enjoying a World Cup. There probably would be a, a match on right now, or maybe not right now because of the morning over there, but you know, there, might have, there may have been one the night before. Um, you know, how important, how important are the, are the home countries, um, and you know, how does the Super League and the RFL itself foster international rugby league? Yeah, I think this week we should have been having the group stages of the wheelchair rugby league world cup mm. um, group group rounds, and the women's games would have been picking up this week as well, and, and all of those things that come with the world cup, which we'll get to enjoy next year. Um, like Phil said, it's not the responsibility of the Super League or even the RFL to to be able to fix the international game um, themselves because it, it involves cooperation with um, the. Australian side of things as well, um, but I think at the even at the local level, you know, we need the the international governance that will come through through with support from the NRL. But but looking at the local level, maybe what we could do in terms of the clubs' relationship with the international game, um, I think these the clubs possibly see it as an imposition on them at the moment. Uh, rather than an opportunity, uh, they probably think that some of the funding they generate to the sport goes out to the England side rather than to themselves. Um, they'll feel like they lose players. Uh, you know, I mean, St Helens didn't have a game when England played against the combined Nations All Stars. Yet they basically withdrew all their players from availability for that game, uh, and, and I'm certain not all of their players had, had coronavirus. As um, an, you know, it's an isolated example. We've seen other clubs do similar things over over past years as well. Um, so it's it's seen 
like it's taking something away from the clubs rather than giving them an opportunity it feels like sometimes and that that's where we need to move towards we need to see the international game as an opportunity I, I sort of feel like with the women's game with the wheelchair game the the community arms of the clubs that run those non professional parts of the of the operations do see it as an opportunity I see a lot more um from the club sort of celebrating their players that they've got available that are playing in those ranks almost um, and you get exposure there and, and notice what's going on there and I think that needs to be seen throughout everything see the international game as an opportunity to, to put to put your, your club in a shop window because you've got players playing on the international stage um, so, so that's the way the relationship needs to switch around they need to look up to the international game rather than see it as a Okay, no, that's great. Um, thanks very much for that, Mark, and, and thank you everyone for for contributing. It seems like, uh, you know, basically the consensus is that the, that it's all about um, it's all about governance from the top and, and a strategy and keeping a strategy for longer than you know maybe a couple of years. Um, I, look, I thank you again, everyone. I just wanted to to really thank you for, for giving your time. Um, and giving me all your opinions and I think we'll, we'll leave it at that for now um, I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there that have got opinions as well so uh, if you want to contact and and give your opinions um, obviously this is this is not my podcast well this is my podcast but this is not the, the main Hypothetic IRL podcast this is uh, full support of the board uh, it has a Twitter account it has um, I think it's FS otb twit and then its email address is fsotbmail at gmail.com so if you want to send me anything uh, if you want to make any comments when this episode goes up I'll, I'll obviously encourage you guys to to make any comments and um once again thank you very much and uh i'll let you guys get on with your day thanks david thanks for having us on thanks